You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. We are in our third week of Advent. Advent is a season used every single year to prepare us. Advent means arrival, obviously referring to the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of the Christ child. And it's a season meant to prepare us for that arrival and to do a work in us spiritually. Somebody asked a question this week. How come every year you guys talk about how Jesus is coming? Like, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Why do you guys say the phrase, Jesus is coming? And it's true, Advent obviously is based off of the story of a coming Christ child that came 2,000 years ago and changed everything. So that, that is most definitely, looking back is certainly a part of the story. Some of you come from a more, maybe a more Catholic or a more high church liturgical tradition where Advent is largely about looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus. And, and so you're like, well, it's not about looking, it's about looking forward. I love to land somewhere in the middle because both are important and yet I'm concerned with something as a spiritual leader of a group of people, I'm concerned about something even I don't, more relevant. I don't know if that's the right phrase to use. That kind of sounds arrogant. But uh, it's good. We come from a good Protestant tradition that loves to study and think, right? That's what we love to do. We love to learn things. We love to talk about things, abstract, like Jesus came 2,000 years ago. That would be fun. That would be easy. We, we do that very well. I know the Reformation... Um, uh, tradition that I grew up in, we always, uh, behind the scenes, we kind of joked with each other that we had to do a lot of work because our trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Like, you never wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit because that was too dangerous. And, and, and I love the fact that Jesus is coming, but I don't want Advent to be about like waiting around until Jesus comes back. So that's also a part of it. But what concerns me as a spiritual leader is what is Jesus going to do this Advent? And so we use present tense language because there's, a, there's a, like a contemplative thing we don't do well in our Protestant movement here. Like we don't talk much about the indwelling power of the spirit of Christ living in and through you. And Advent is supposed to turn the lights on to that. Like Advent's supposed to that thing that we don't often talk about, Advent is a time to talk about it. And it works well for me because I love this season. Not the, not the commercialized Santa part, but the like the nostalgic drawing in, reflection, self-reflection. Uh, man, winter, my favorite season. I know I'm crazy, whatever. Save your emails. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, so Advent does this work, and, and it's good. And so I want to, we're going to do something, we're going to do something again this week like we did last week. We're going to read the Christmas story, then we're going to leave the Christmas story. We're going to spend all morning somewhere else, and then I'm going to tr- try to do my job of tying it back to the Christmas story at the end. Is that okay? Okay, Advent is a season where we start with hope. Hope is where we turn our eyes towards the manger. The moment we take our first step, we bump into the next week, which is about peace, shalom. Because we realize, if I turn my eyes towards the manger and hope, and then I start to take a step, the first thing I realize is I got stuff. I got, I got things that I'm bringing with me on this journey, like brokenness, sin, rebellion, like whatever it is that I'm bringing with me, like I got baggage that I gotta deal with. And so we find forgiveness, and we get wholeness, and that wholeness leads us to the third week, this week, joy. And I don't want to spoiler alert you, but next week is love, and then the week after that is the Christ child. Major spoiler alert, Jesus shows up. I don't want to surprise anybody with that. But we're on this this journey. So let's read the Christmas story, 
and uh, we'll get started. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, you see. I love to Dr. Seuss that one. That's good. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galil to Judea to Beit Lechem. Say Beit Lechem. Beit means house. Lechem means bread. House of bread. I wonder if the bread of life is going to be born in the house of bread. The town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Miriam, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room. By the way, Aaron last week said pandaxion was the word. He got that wrong. I watch his sermons all the time so that the next week I can come back in here and correct whatever it is he got wrong. Just know that I got your back, okay? He's over in Pullman this morning. He's not here. It's all good. Who knows what he's saying over there? (laughs) Who knows? No. Pandaxion, he he came up to me after Thursday. and was like, at least tell him that I was close. So Pandaxion is actually the word for inn. uh, Luke knows how to use the word. In the story of the Good Samaritan, they take him to an inn, and Luke uses the word Pandaxion. This word is Kataluma. Jesus has the Last Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of service, that supper took place in a kataluma. So wherever you picture the Lord's Supper taking place, that's the same place where there is, not the same like literal place, but the same setting that there's no room for Mary and Joseph. It's a kataluma. Okay, it has nothing to do with a Motel 6 or a hotel or anything like that. It's a room in a house that is used for hospitality, guests, all the, that's, that's what there's no room for them. So kataluma, not pandaxion. Change your notes. Available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Mashiach, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told him about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. All right, now, if Advent is the season where we are preparing for the presence of the Lord to come among us in the incarnate form of the baby, the babe, if, they're, if we're preparing for the presence of God, the idea of this Advent was why don't we use the metaphor that God gave his people thousands of years ago to talk about preparing for the presence of God, i.e. the temple. The temple was this thing that God used to teach. It was a teaching tool. It wasn't designed to separate men and women, or holy from. It was designed to teach us how to discern between what does the process look like in approaching the presence of God and discerning what God is doing in the world. We got that wrong throughout the story, but that's what the tool was designed to be used for. And so we've been walking through. We have this diagram here. Uh, On Thursday night, the guys in the tech booth back there were like, it always looks like a basketball court when we put it up there. And I was like, yeah. I told Coach Rod, like, I feel like I want to set a high ball pick off the altar 
and then drive and dish in the holy place and take it hard to the holy of holies. That's probably the most sacrilegious thing that I've now done three times. It would not be the way a typical Jew would talk about this. Nevertheless, I am not a typical Jew. So we talked about week one, we talked about the courtyard. This is the place where you could come and you could um, observe, you could bring tithes and offerings, you could learn. There would be, uh, oftentimes you'd find rabbis here teaching. Um, you, you, you could hear the worship taking place, you could join in the worship. There'd be all kinds of out in the courtyard. And we talked about hope, because that's where the seeds of hope are sown. You can hear about the prophecies, you can learn about God. But if you wanna do more than just learn about God, if you want to approach and get to know God, you have to take one step further. And so we talked about the altar last week. And the altar is this place where confession happens. Um, the altar is a place of forgiveness. Uh, one of the things I said in Pullman last week, the altar is not a place of judgment. The altar is a place of forgiveness. The altar is not a place of condemnation. The altar is a place of freedom. Nothing else happens at the altar. They're, they're, that's what the altar is for. There's no trial at the altar. There's no gavel at the altar. There, there's no judgment at the altar. The, there's only one thing that happens. It always ends the same way, forgiveness. That's what the altar is for. The altar is a place of forgiveness, nothing else. And so you experience forgiveness at the altar. And so this week we wanna go one step further and talk about the steps. Some people might say the porch. There it is right there. I remember when I was uh, learning about this, um, Really, years ago when I first got here, Aaron was the one that kind of filled in some different blanks for me when it came to uh, learning some of these pieces here. And I remember when we walked through it, the porch, the steps was a place that I was always like, what? Like the courtyard made sense, the altar, I'm all in, that's obviously a big deal. The holy place, the holy of holies. But the steps, like I felt like, man, we're kind of reaching here. But actually, it's going to show up in the text, and there's going to be something pretty cool going on. I should not be surprised by that at this point. Uh, but I kind of was this year as I prepared for the piece that I was like, ah, this is the one that I'm like, and I, I found some really interesting things in Jewish thought, and I want to share them with you. Is that okay? Okay, let me show you some pictures here. It's kind of what I do when I'm up here. Uh, not the pictures, but the sharing Jewish things. Um, here's some pictures. There's the courtyard. There's step number one that we looked at, and then the next picture there shows you the steps. Uh, where, where rabbis could sit and teach. Jesus is probably in a spot like this. He's at least in this courtyard. He could be sitting on those very steps. When he teaches his disciples about the widow's offering and her giving her two little pennies, uh, and he teaches about how, how much she's truly given, that teaching happens right here in this area. Then you gotta go through those doors if you're gonna keep walking through this process. And through those doors is our next picture. And we have the altar sitting right there. That was the place of confession, forgiveness. And then the steps right behind those, you can see the steps right there. This would be Herod's remodel of the second temple. And uh, Solomon also had steps. We'll see this in just a moment. But those are the steps there. Please notice as you look at this picture, that confession, the steps represent repentance in, in Jewish liturgical thought. Notice how the two are two different things. Because in our Protestant tradition, we love to make them the same thing. Confession and repentance. They are, they are not the same thing. They are two radically different things. Confession is the, is the act of fessing up. You fess with, confess. You fess with. You, you testify with. So, so God is aware of the fact that you were supposed to be walking on this path, and at some point you diverted from the path, and you now wake up and you find yourself over here, and, and you fess up with God. You testify with the Spirit of God that I am off the path. 
To which God says, yes. Repentance is actually going back and, re- the word literally means return. The word is shuva. Say shuva. Shuva is the actual return to the path. That is the repentance. This is just confession. And in the Christian Protestant world, we love to be like, I confessed and repented. Not if you didn't go back, you didn't. All you did was confess. So if all you do is like, yes, I did something wrong. Yes, I confess. And then you're like, okay, good. Whew, got that off my chest. That's not repentance. That's only confession. Does that make sense? The confession is where we find, and what did we find at the altar? It was only used for one thing. What was that one thing? Forgiveness. At the altar, you find forgiveness. And so that forgiveness is supposed to produce in us joy. That peace leads to joy. That, ooh, even more scriptures are coming to mind all of a sudden for the first time. Probably not a good place to add them. (laughs) The, The peace, the wholeness, the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness, the freedom leads to a changed heart. But more on that in a moment. Let's actually look at the passage about the steps. 2 Chronicles chapter 9. This is, when, this is when Solomon, his name is Shlomo, say Shlomo, it's a good name, it's fun to say too. The servants of Hiram, he's building the temple in this passage, actually he's built, never mind. The servants of Hiram and the servants of Shlomo bought, brought gold from Ophir, they also brought algumwood and precious stones. The king used the algumwood to make steps for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians, nothing like them had ever been seen in Judah. Those, that word there, steps, he used the algum wood to make steps. The word for steps there is the word makila. Say makila. Makila from the root word kalal. Say kalal. C-A-L-A-L. Kalal is the root word. Interesting word that's used here. I didn't realize how interesting it was going to be. One of the things that you do from a Jewish perspective when you do a word study is you always ask a question that is referred to as the law of first mention, the principle of first mention. You're going to go back to the first place that 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 root word was ever used. And you're going to find that first usage. and, And that, going back to that story, is going to give you insight in Jewish hermeneutics in their mind. It's going to give you insight in in the kinds of things you're supposed to see in all the places that that word is used throughout the scriptures. If the first usage is in Torah, the books of Moses. If they're not in the books of Moses, all bets could be off. But if the first usage of a word is in the books of Moses, that law of first mention oftentimes will drive somewhat the interpretation. Now, kalal, the root word kalal, is first used in the book of Genesis. It's used in the story of Jacob. Which if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, last week Aaron told us that in Psalm 32, who was the poster child for a person who's blessed by God even if they don't confess, even if they're full of deceit? Jacob. And now we're back to Jacob again. When the chronicler talks about the temple that Solomon's building, he purposely uses a word that shows up for the first time in the story of Jacob and the dream about the ladder. Okay, the stairway, ladder, staircase, steps, all the same root word, the root word kalal. In Genesis 28, it's going to be the word kulam, say kulam. Only used once in all the Hebrew scriptures. Only used one time. That ladder up to heaven, the angels ascending and descending on it. Now, I want to go to that story. Here's the setup to the story in Genesis 28. 
Jacob is on the run because he's just been a real jerk to his brother. He stole his birthright, then he stole his blessing, and now Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. And so he's on the run. He's running for his life. He's got to leave his family, and he's got to go find some extended family. He's leaving Beersheba, and he's got to go all the way to Haran. Grab a map. That'll be a fun geographical lesson. He's got to go from Beersheba all the way to Haran to spend time with his extended family in order to find a place of safety. He is on the way, running from Beersheba to Haran. We're going to pick up in Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, there was a, a, a Jewish author by the name of Lawrence Kushner who wrote a book called God Was in This Place and I Was Not Aware of It. He talks a lot about this. But the Hebrew phrase for a certain place literally in the Hebrew means in the middle of nowhere's nowhere. Like that would be a better translation for it. Like in the middle of nowhere's nowhere. It is a Hebrew expression for like, there is, the author is letting you know there is nothing significant about where he's at. Nothing's ever happened here. There's not some sacred oak tree or a spring of water that's special. He is in the middle of nowhere's nowhere. Now we find out at the end of the story, he's near a town called Luz, but apparently, this is not about loose. He is in the middle of nowhere. The author is like, there, there is nothing significant about where he is. He stopped for the night, and because the sun had set, taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep like you do. Right? When, yeah, I don't know. I'm just tired. Find me a rock. When you sleep on rocks, you have weird dreams. Watch this. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth. There's that word, kulam. Say kulam. He saw a kulam resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And so when the chronicler talks about Solomon building the temple, is the chronicler calling us back to this story because the temple is the place where the presence of God, heaven, meets earth? Is the temple the place where there's an exchange between the world that we live in and the world that God desires? Is there something, let's find out if there might be something more to that. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Yitzhak. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I am with you. Makes me think of God with us. Emmanuel, this is the story of Christmas. Not this, but you get the idea. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Jacob wakes up, and he realizes, I am in the middle of nowhere's nowhere, and God met me here. I don't know if any of you have had this experience, maybe similar to what Jacob experienced, where you, you find yourself in the middle of a mess that you have maybe even made. You are at the end of your rope. You are at the bottom of the barrel, rock bottom. You are dealing with an addiction. You are, and at, like when you are filled with the most despair, somehow God shows up in your story. And we say things like God shows up, but that couldn't be more theologically inaccurate. It's not that God shows up, it's that we show up. God was in the place the whole time, Jacob says, and I wasn't aware. I woke. Jacob wakes up physically, but Jacob wakes up spiritually. Jacob is woke. See what I did there? 
Okay, so Jacob, Jacob, Jacob has this like lights on moment. It wasn't that God came anywhere. It's that God was always there and all of a sudden Jacob becomes aware of it. Have any of you had this experience before? Maybe, maybe, okay, only like three of you, so that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> let me try to make this more relevant. Maybe you have found yourself in the middle of the absolute mundane. You're, you're washing dishes, you're changing diapers, you're shoveling the snow in your driveway, and all of a sudden, there's this awareness that goes off of something that God is gifting you or an awareness that you should have seen before or a voice that was, be, what was whispering and you took just a moment to, to hear it, a burning bush moment, which is actually connected in Jewish thought to this story. It may, now do you know what I'm, anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. That's better. So the temple, well, let's keep, let's keep reading actually. He was afraid and said, this will be our last, you got more passage in your notes. For the sake of brevity, I'm going to stop here. But he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the what? House of God. And so when they actually build a house of God later, the author takes you where? Back here, because this is where Israel, his name will later be changed to Israel. This is where Israel encountered the presence of God. The temple is about encountering the presence of God and having it turn the lights on to the way that you see the world. It is a teaching tool. This is the gate of heaven, Jacob says. He will go on, if you look in your notes, to name this place what? He'll name this place Bethel. Beit, remember Beit Lechem? How about Beit, say Beit. El, house of God. He names this place house of God. This is the story that the writers take us back to when we start dealing with the temple. And because of that, Jewish thought will go on to say that the life of Jacob really is a template. It provides the template for how the temple liturgy works. Because all the different stages of approaching God in the temple liturgy are the same stages that Jacob goes through in his life. Let me show you and give you an example. Jacob is going to have this dream and he's not going to wake up and all of a sudden be perfect Jacob. But this is a defining moment for him. Later in his life, he's going to bring all of his kids back to this place. He's going to take that stone he was sleeping on. He's going to stand it up and stick it in the ground and pour oil on it. He's going to bring his kids back to that stone. And say, so let me tell you the story where everything changed for me. This is the beginning of a journey for him. In some regards, this could be like his, his courtyard experience. This is where God showed up and said, I know that you're kind of a jerk, but I am going to use you. It's hope. It's where the seeds of hope got sown in his life. You're going to use me? Yeah, I'm going to use you. Even you, Jacob. Wow. So then he leaves that place, again, not perfect, and he has to go to the house of Laban. Say Laban. We often say Laban, which is fine. And we, Laban's house, where he meets his match of deceit. Like they are just as deceitful, and they have like this deceiving like contest. 14 years he works for Laban to acquire two different wives and to start to have a family. And the whole time, these 14 years are just one person deceiving the other, deceiving the other, deceiving the other. And in some regard, we could say, well, he's grown somewhat. He's not quite the same person he was with Esau, but he ain't quite, he's not quite there yet. Anybody relate to that? Like, I'm not quite the person that I used to be, but I'm still, boy, country music song coming up, sorry. (laughs) I ain't the man that I... Anyways, yeah, somebody's got it. Boom. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry. I got a little worked up there. 
Yeah, so, so there's like this moment, like Jacob is on this way. Jacob is on this, this way that he's being changed, but he's not, he's not there yet. And so he leaves Laban, and he actually is on the run for kind of his life again because Laban's now after him. So they get that matter settled, kind of, but that's more, more a sermon for another day. And, and, and finally Laban leaves, and Jacob's like, whew, and then he gets told Esau's coming. And I think Jacob's thought must have been, oi, my life has caught up to me. Jake, or Esau's coming. Esau, well, the last time I saw Esau, he wanted to kill me. And so Jacob, being a true gentleman and a scholar, does something really interesting. He takes all of his possessions and all of his wealth, and he sends them on up ahead. And then he takes a wife that's not his favorite, and that's what the text tells us. And he takes her and her family, and he sends her on next. And then he takes his favorite wife, and her family, and her servants, and he sends them on last. And then he sticks around behind because he has another long night of sleep ahead of him. Like I said, a real gentleman and a scholar, if I do say so. What a jerk. And he, he has another long night of sleep. This time a man or an angel or the Lord, your pick, because the text can't decide either, comes and wrestles with Jacob. During the wrestling match, Jacob demands a blessing, and the person says, really, a blessing? What is your name? And for the first time in Jacob's life, he finally admits who he is. He says, I am Jacob. And he has this moment of confession. That's his confession moment. And, and he gets this blessing of, a, he walks away with a limp. It's not an easy encounter. But he, gets, he has this confession moment. He gets done with the wrestling match. That next morning, he heads out and finds Esau. And Esau's response is, what is all this? What, what is all the wealth and the possessions and this family and that family? What are you doing? And Jacob says, this, this is all yours. It's all yours, for I have wronged you. He's trying to repent, but he's trying to repent from a place of fear. Like he hasn't really had a true confession moment. Like the altar really hasn't done its true work in him. Because he's not repenting out of a place of joy. He's repenting out of a place of fear. But he's trying to appease Esau. You know what Esau's response is? I, I don't need all this. Like whatever, whatever spiritual journey Esau has been on, I wish that was in the book of Genesis. Because now he's at a place later where he's like, I'm fine. we're fine. Listen, we're okay. We're okay. And it is the kindness of Esau that will lead Jacob on his continued journey of repentance. It is the kindness of Esau that will lead to Jacob's repentance. It is kindness that leads to repentance, which for all you New Testament scholars makes us all think of another passage, Yes in Romans chapter two, so let's go there. By the way, Romans two is written to the group of people who are in the know. Like this is not written to outsiders, this isn't written to non-believers or even new believers. Romans two is talking to the, in that particular case it's Jews, talking to the group of people that know. We know how the system works. We are aware of who God is. We're not perfect, we're not whatever, but we, we know. We know the system, we know how this works. We know, we know, we know. And this is the group that Paul is writing to. For most of us in the room, it's probably us. Not all of us. But for most of us in the room that have grown up in the church, we, we try to love Jesus with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might, like this would be us. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show, listen to this, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, 
forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The, Paul, Paul tells this group, the, the, the in crowd in Rome, have you forgotten what God's kindness is about? God's kindness, that moment at the altar, his patience, his forbearance, his forgiveness, his love, that is supposed to change you. It's supposed to change you. So how screwed up would it be if you have your moment at the altar and as you walk towards the steps, you kind of like turn around and start berating the people that are on their way to the altar behind you? Oh, you losers. Let me tell you what you guys are doing wrong as you like backpedal towards the presence of God. Paul says, oh, do you heap judgment on yourself when you do that? It is God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. Let's actually finish this passage up. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath where his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. The moment at the altar, experiencing forgiveness, patience, forbearance, kindness, love, grace, mercy, freedom, that is supposed to change us. It, it should produce in us joy, and out of that joy should come a desire to and not judge. It should be joy, not judgment. So, so here's what I want to do. We need to head to Lord's Supper. I'm running late. Um, but I want to do something different today. Uh, we, have, uh, we have implications in your notes. Please read them. Sermon Club team came up with them. They're pretty good. Read them, wrestle with them. But I don't want to do implications today. Uh, I want to tell a parable that Jesus told instead. Um, our servers are going to go back and get the Lord's table ready for us, get the emblems ready to pass out. If you are new with us, we have an open table. What that means is that if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your family, and you need to join us today as family. Just hold on to the bread and hold on to the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. But in order to prepare for this, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna story out a parable that Jesus told. Jesus told a parable about a king and this king wanted to balance his books. And so he starts going through his books and he finds that there is a servant out there who owes him, and the proper translation would be 10,000 bags of gold. It is the equivalent of at least three lifetimes worth of wages. Okay? Uh, a light, uh, uh, about 3,000, somewhere to three to 4,000 bags of gold might be what a person might uh, get in an entire lifetime, 10,000 bags of gold, which raises the question, what kind of a king allows you to amass that kind of debt? But nevertheless, I digress. This, this king calls in the servant, and he says, I'm gonna throw you in jail because you can't repay this debt. And the, the servant falls down on his knees before the king, and he begs the king to have mercy on him and give him just a little bit of time, and he will repay the debt, which we all know he can't do. He will not repay the debt. He cannot. He, he cannot repay the debt. That's an impossibility. But the king, we're told, moved with compassion, not only gives him more time, but instead wipes the slate completely clean and forgives his debt entirely. 
setting him free. He, li- he then leaves the king's presence and on his way home sees somebody who owes him three months wages, three lifetimes, three months. And he grabs this individual by the throat and demands repayment. The person falls down on their knees and does the same thing he just did. They, be- they beg for mercy and for time and they will pay him back and they probably actually even could. And instead, he has the person thrown into prison. And the word, the bystanders send word back to the king. And the king calls the servant back in. And the king says these words, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. I forgave your 10,000 bags of gold. Shouldn't you have also forgiven your neighbor his debt as well? You wicked servant. Jesus tells other parables. One of them actually ends with a completely different ending. Well done, the master says, good and faithful servant. His parables, by the way, you can research them yourself, follow a particular theme. His parables always talk about certain people that are open and generous and kind and forgiving. That's where the parable goes, where it ends with well done, good and faithful servant. And then there are some parables where there isn't. There's a stinginess. There's a judgmental. There's a scarcity issue. There's a, I I haven't truly gotten it. The man left the presence of the king, and he left the presence of the king unchanged. And he is called, you wicked servant. So let's tie this back into Advent. Christmas, Advent, is about preparing ourselves for the arrival of the Christ child. Last week we talked about confession. The joy of the forgiveness that we find in confession should lead us to be different people. It should change us. If the forgiveness and the grace and the love that we experience in Jesus, if we come here and we take the bread and the juice and we sing the songs and we sit out in the lobby with our cup of coffee talking about how good Jesus is to us and it doesn't change the kind of openness and forgiveness I show family members and friends, if it doesn't change the kind of parent that I am and the way that I deal with my children, if it doesn't change as a child, as an adolescent, the way that I'm walking in Christ, if it doesn't change the kind of employer and the kind of employee that I am, if the grace and the love of Jesus doesn't change literally every single part of me, then beware of the judgment that we heap on ourselves. The love of Christ has to change us. I'll give one last example on a very large macro level that I gave on Thursday, but I didn't give it with enough humility and it went over like a bag of bricks. So let me give it with a little bit more openness and lessons learned. Is that okay? We, we spent enough money on Black Friday this year to, to give clean water and feed the entire African continent for the next eight to 10 years, by some people's estimations. On one day. Now, I realize what I'm about to say next is a very complex situation. 
I understand that there are lots of nuances and many different ideologies that will deal with this situation differently. I understand, I understand, I understand. Do you understand me? There are many, this is very complex. This is not just like simple conversation, one and done, got that taken care of. I understand. I understand that not everybody in the room will see it the same way. I just find it interesting that in one day we're able to spend that kind of money while thousands of people sit at our southern border asking for help. And I know, I know there's lots of, I know, all the nuances. Please feel free to do that. By the way, can I give you a personal little tidbit while we're talking about repentance? We have an idolatry problem. Because you are more passionate about your politics than you are Jesus. You are more passionate about the kingdoms of this world than the kingdom that God is building. And you are more passionate about your political ideologies and the, te- and the teachings of your talk show hosts than you are about Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is sin, period, no matter what side of this conversation you are on, and it needs to be repented of. Amen. Jesus is not a side option. It's not an add-on to the thing that's going on in the world. Not if you are a follower of him as Lord and Savior and or rabbi. I don't know what to do with that situation, but it strikes me like an odd kind of parable. It strikes me as an odd kind of parable. And I'm not sure how it will end. Well done, good and faithful, or you wicked servant. Uh, about the politics, I don't care. Well, we can debate those. The heart needs to change. Um, we have this uh, moment. And by the way, I, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm human. Did you know that? I can be wrong about things. I would prefer you not to email me and tell me that I'm wrong about things. You just save yourself the time. Doesn't make me feel good. I don't know if it makes you feel good. Let, just save that. That's cool. You can disagree with me and not actually have to tell me about it. That is a crazy idea. You're welcome to do that. What I do know, what I do know is that every week we hold in our hands like, uh, a, a moment of rem- a reminder of forgiveness and grace and love and all those things that are supposed to change us. What I know is this, if we leave this building today with, with the taste of bread and grape juice on our lips and the words that come out of those lips after we leave the doors, if they are not changed by the moment we are about ready to remember, uh, the judgment that we heap on ourselves for the day of God's wrath, Paul would say. Uh, be changed by the altar. Be changed by the bread and the juice. Be changed this Advent season. Go out with heaping helpings of grace and openness and love and generosity and compassion and goodness. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, he said, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus and forgiveness today. And later on in the meal, he took a cup, he passed it to his disciples, he said, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant. 
Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, you, you told us in another teaching somewhere else, you said that he or she who has forgiven much loves much. Uh, would you remind each and every one of us, there are a lot of hands that went up when we talked about relating to the Jacob story. Would you remind us of the different places where you've met us, uh, things that you've forgiven us? Would you remind us of what our laundry list looks like, that you've, our 10,000 bag, bags of gold worth of debt that we've racked up, that you wiped clean, would you remind us of what our debt looked like? Remind us. And would that experience, would that reminder, would that, rea would that reality, that truth, would that loving kindness well up inside of us joy, not judgment? Would we be changed because we leave here not just having sang joy to the world, but having joy to the world actually have gotten inside of our bones and made us different. Would joy to the world not just be a song, would it be a prayer and an expression of our gratitude for the things that we've experienced at the altar? God, we love you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, whom we love greatly. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.